You're listening to Thinkative, a podcast for philosophers, seekers, and the generally curious. And uh, I'm Tim Newton. I'm Matt Parker. I and Matt, Matt and I, are going to be uh, trying to explore some philosophical questions, some of which I may be able to get my head around, but I'm not the expert in these matters. Uh, Dr. Matt Parker is uh, the Doctor of Philosophy. Today, the topic of conversation is, uh, well... The reason we're talking about this is because we had tried to have a conversation about infinity a while back and uh, we were well into our, we, we, we record two of these at a time and uh, we were well into our second bottle of wine and I was struggling <laughs> to get my head round, round infinity. Uh, if you ever can get your head around infinity uh, by the end of the, by the end of the session. So we decided that that was just too hard. That was just too hard for me. Uh, and so what we decided to do is change the wine. Uh, which might help, and also break infinity down into bite-sized chunks. The question that we'll be looking at today is, Dr. Matt? Are some infinities bigger than others? Okay. Right. Which implies that there are lots of infinities, perhaps an infinite amount, you'll be able to tell me. Are some infinities bigger Bigger than than others? Well, yeah. Okay, so... Um, right, so we're going to try really hard, right, to just focus on this uh, this one particular question about infinity, right? Yeah, we're going I to sus- stick to the subject, and we're going to I stick sus- to this bottle of wine, which right. is my shout tonight. It's a 2004 Reserva uh, from Castillo de, de Calatrava, uh, Tempranillo. It's a Spanish bronze uh, medal winner uh, from La Mancha. That's all I know about it. Got it from the corner shop. Look at that. This is our most expensive bottle of wine to date. Eight quid. Eight. Is it? Not just eight quid. Eight ninety nine. Eight ninety nine. Oh my gosh, you've splurged. I have uh, because this is a special night. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. I'm going to be opening this while you start talking about infinity, and I will be listening hard. I promise. Right. right. Okay. So I mean, for for a long time, um, since you know the ancient Greeks, uh, the question of whether uh, there even is such a thing as an infinite quantity. Um, hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, was much debated. Um, and they have this distinction between, uh, I believe this is, this is Aristotle's distinction between um, potential infinities and actual infinities and so on. And some of the big problems about infinity, some of the arguments that infinities can't really exist um, came from these paradoxes you get when you try to think about whether or not there are different sizes of infinity. Right. Right. But, so, as, as we were just talking about before we got started here, uh, there's a mathematician in the late 19th century named Georg Cantor. And he came up with an idea about what it would mean for two infinite, different infinities to have the same size. He didn't exactly come up with the idea, but he founded a theory on it, a theory that works. And he was ready to give up on other ideas about what, what the number of, uh, of things in an infinite collection amounts to and, and just focus on this one idea. And the idea is the idea of a one-to-one correspondence. So, Okay. Is he thinking about numbers then? He's thinking about numbers and he's thinking about collections of numbers. And the main thing that Cantor was really concerned about was points in space. He wanted to understand the structure of the space that we live in, which seems to be made up of infinitely many little tiny places, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, 
your glass of wine could be here, or it could be an inch over here, or it could be half an inch between, or it could be a quarter of an inch in between those. There are infinitely many different little places where your glass of wine could be, right? I'm going to put it in this little place. Yeah. And have a drink. Okay. Right. Yes, that I get. I can see that. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of points. And within those points, there are even more little points, and you could just go on right. ad infinitum. So Cantor wanted to know about what is the structure of, of these points in the space that we live in? How many of them are there? What does that question even mean? And his idea was, okay, well, we can have different collections of, of infinitely many things uh, or finitely many things. Let's just take the finite case to begin with. So if you take your two hands and you just touch your pinkies together and you touch your ring fingers together yeah. and then your middle fingers yeah. and your index fingers and your thumbs. Yeah. What you've done, just done there is constructed a one-to-one correspondence between the fingers on your left hand and the fingers on your right hand. We're all looking very thoughtful around the table with our, right. our fingers mm. touching like this. Mm, go we're, on. Yes, we're not praying. We're just counting, right? <laughs> so, but actually, you can, what you can do with that is you can know whether two collections have the same number of elements, and you don't even have to count them to know, right? So, um, for example, if you walk into a restaurant... It's a romantic restaurant, and um, and for some reason this is a purely heterosexual restaurant. There are tables, small tables. Um, each table has two chairs, and at each table is seated a man and a woman. Okay. Okay? Uh, you look around. There's a lot of people in there. It's not easy to count how many people are in there, but you can clearly see that each table has exactly one man and exactly one woman. Right. Now, the question is, are there more men in that room or more women? The there's, that's the same. The same number. Yeah. You know that because of the one-to-one correspondence. That's right. right. I got that right. Okay. I'm well with done. you so far. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Good. Yeah. Did you know that, Jason? I was edging for that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah for that. Okay. Um, good. So that's the principle, right? If two, if two collections can be put into a one-to-one correspondence like that, yeah. then they must have the same number of elements. Now, what Cantor then went on to prove is that if you take a, an infinite collection like the set of all whole numbers, right? Yeah. And compare that to the collection of all points uh, on a line, say. Between, yeah. Like if you have a, a line that's one inch long and you mark it off with zero on the far on one end and one on the other end and write one half, mark one half in the middle and so on, like on a ruler, for example. Is this what we were talking about before that I couldn't get? Well, I suppose. Oh, right. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah, Yeah, it's one of the many things I couldn't get. This one, so far, I'm with you, yeah. So far, okay, good. Right, so so what Cantor was able to show was that the number of different places on that line is actually bigger than the number of whole numbers there are, right? So the whole numbers being 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on. Actually, he showed that there is no one-to-one correspondence between all the whole numbers and the points on a line segment. Is there any kind of one-to-one correspondence with all the whole numbers? Sure. In fact, take just the points on that on that line hmm. that are marked with ordinary fractions. By an ordinary fraction, I mean what we call a rational number, which is just a number that you could write um, with one whole number and a line and another whole number underneath, right? So like three-fourths, mm. nine-tenths, mm. 115 two-hundredths. Yeah, uh, 3,986s. Sure. Could you have that? That's more Absolutely. than one, though. Now, how many of those are there on the line? There's infinitely many. 
because the denominator could be as big as you want. You can choose any numerator, any top number mm. that, um, that, you know, if you want it to be between zero and one, then the top number has to be smaller than the bottom number. But still, there's infinitely many of those on the line. Okay. But it turns out that you can easily match those up one-to-one with the whole numbers. Basically, all you have to do is make a list of them. So the first one on the list is one-half, the next one is one-fourth, the next one is three-fourths, and then we can do the thirds. I should have done the thirds first, I suppose. You've got one-third and two-thirds, and then you can do the fifths. You've got one-fifth, two-fifths, three-fifths, four-fifths, and so on. And what we're doing is we're making a list of all the fractions on the line, And because we can just make a list like that and get all of them eventually, by which I just mean if we keep going down the list, we'll eventually hit any given one of them, Mm -hmm. right? Then what we're really doing is we're constructing a a one-to-one correspondence between the whole numbers, number one, number two, number three, number four, and the fractions, one-half, one-third, two-thirds, and so on. So this one-to-one correspondence, what was the reason, what was the application or the thinking behind looking into it? Um, That's a good question. This was to discover the sizes of infinities. Yeah, that's right. That's what what Cannon wanted to do. He wanted to understand which infinities are bigger than others, especially with regard to points in space. Why exactly he came to focus in on one-to-one correspondence is, um, it's not obvious, but in fact, that wasn't really his first main idea. His first main idea was, in a way, sort of crazier. He had the idea that you could have these sort of symbols of infinity, he called them at first, where you would just have a sequence, like, as if you were counting, right? One, two, three, four, five. And you could say, well, let's see, we can keep counting and counting whole numbers, and then eventually we go to a limit, uh, which we could just call infinity or omega, right? Right. Um, So that means we just imagine, well, suppose we've done counting all... so a limit. A limit. So it's not limitless. Uh, yeah, the, the sense of the word limit here is kind of technical, right? Picture a sequence of points on a sheet of paper, right? Yeah. If the sequence of points get closer and closer together yeah. and closer and closer to some particular place on the, the page, then we yeah. call that a limit. So that's a concept from calculus. More and this, like a destination. Yeah, it's like a destination, right? Uh-huh. But in a way, there is a sort of limit because... Part of Cantor's vision was that once we can sort of measure and count and evaluate infinities, then they're somehow constrained. They're they're more manageable. They're they're in a sense they they in a sense become more finite. Anyway, Cantor had this other idea about just um, you could have an, an ordinal sequence. He later came to call these ordinal numbers. You can have just a sequence of numbers that go on and on, and then you kind of take a leap and say, okay, suppose we're done with all those numbers, and now we, we add on some more numbers that come after all of the whole numbers, right? And we call those... Super holes. Super holes, let's say, yeah. right? Okay, and then we count all of those, and there are infinitely many of those, and we come to another limit. We say, okay, now take another leap and add some more off of that and say, okay, now, we could, now we've got three leaps. We could go five leaps, seven leaps, 100 leaps. Let's suppose we've counted all the leaps... And do another sort of meta leap, right? Yeah. So Cantor's first idea was this sequence that came to the sequence of things that came to be called the ordinals. And at first he thought of these as as at least this is my reading of Cantor, is that he thought this was the way to compare different sizes of infinity. Okay. So in terms of of these <clears throat> infinities and some infinities being bigger than others, mm-hmm. let's 
talk, if we can then, about a very small infinity okay. and a very big one. Right. So uh, Let's have an example. Good. So the, the very smallest infinity uh, that there is is um, the collection of whole numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, That four, is five. the smallest infinity That's possible. the smallest one there is. Yeah. They don't get any smaller. They don't get any smaller than that, I'm afraid. Uh, not without being finite. And that's exactly what, what an infinity cannot be, right? Okay. So, so the, the, whole, the collection so this, of whole numbers is the smallest. Yeah, but it, do, it still does go on forever then. It does go on forever. It's an infinity, right? We're right. talking about infinities here. Okay. So it has to go on forever or it's not infinite. Yeah. You know, if you talk about uh, decimal numbers, uh, or even if you include repeating decimals, those are still rational numbers, so that's still the smallest size of infinity that right. there is. Well, ah, here's an example. This is something that, that Cantor proved. If you have um, a, 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 an infinite space like ours, right? Yeah. Well, let's suppose the space we live in is infinite. And, um, and it's full of these sort of closed regions, like, say, balls, for example, or blobs, like... Bounded blobs, nothing that goes on forever, but just nice little finite blobs like lumps of clay that you would normally imagine. It turns out that how many of those can you fit into the universe? Only a countable infinity, the smallest possible infinity. So that's another example of the smallest possible infinity. Oh, well, that, but that, that's, that's just as small. Yeah, just as small as the whole numbers. In other words, if we filled up the whole universe with finite lumps of clay... Yeah. then we know that we would be able to count them and make a list of them all. So it would be just as small an infinity as uh, the collection of whole numbers. Okay. So we, Jason's just doing something fundamental down there with a cable, which is good, because that's li- gives me, that gives me time to sort of absorb all of this. Now, you, do, you were saying something which got me very interested, because I could <laughs> immediately picture this, uh, having spent a lot of time in pubs in my life. Um <laughs> A dartboard. Right. Okay. I thought this was, and you mentioned that, and I'd love to know more about the dartboard thing. So a dartboard is a, um, well, it's it's a surface, right? It is. And like the line I was talking about that has not only infinitely many points on it, but a bigger infinity. Yeah. Um, the, the dartboard actually has the same number of points on it, according to Cantor's theory, right? So this is according to the, the standard theory based on one-one correspondence of what it means for two collections to have the same number of things. Right. Okay? Um, according to that theory, another really interesting thing that Cantor proved was that, uh, is that the number of points in, on, a, on a line segment, you know, just a, a small little piece of a line, is exactly equal to the number of points on an infinite line, and that's exactly equal to the number of points on uh, a square or a disk. And there's one-to-one correspondence. There's one-to-one correspondence. So you can actually, you can construct a map so that each point on the square is mapped to a, a point on the line segment and vice versa. Right. right. So that's how you do it. You, you sort of a picture, you have a square and picture taking each point, for each point on the square, you draw a line down to um, a point that's on the bottom of the square. For every single point on the whole square, you can draw a line down to a point on the bottom of the square so that every point on the bottom of the square is matched one-to-one with some other point in the square. Okay. So all all that is just to say that a line segment has the same number of points as a square, and that, of course, is the same number of points on a disk like a dartboard. 
Great. Okay, so now, thinking of the dartboard now. Right. The dartboard is also divided up into 20 segments. Yeah. Uh, and of those 20 segments, there are other little segments within it, the double and the double top, and the double and the treble. Right. And then there's a bullseye. And right. The, and then there's a smaller, so the bullseye is a smaller circle within that circle. Right. Are you telling me that within the bullseye, yeah. there are as many infinite points as there are on the whole dartboard? That's right. In the bullseye... There's an infinite collection of points. Yeah. And according to Cantor's widely accepted theory, there are just as many points in that tiny bullseye yeah. as there are on the whole dartboard. And it's exactly as many points in the double top as well. Even though it's really hard to hit that bullseye, yeah. it's, it's not because there aren't as many points there. It's for some other reason, right? It's, it's, a, it's what mathematicians call the measure or basically the area of that bullseye is yeah. much smaller than the area of the rest of the dartboard. But that doesn't mean, according to Cantor's theory, that there are fewer points there. And this is what confused the ancients quite a lot, because they yeah. thought, well, look, um, this little bullseye in the middle of the dartboard yeah. is just a tiny, tiny part of the whole dartboard. That's right. So obviously it has to have much fewer points than, than the dartboard as a whole. But no. But no, not according to Garrett Cantor. Right? There is another mathematician called Bolzano, who wrote a book about infinity um, uh, maybe about 50 years before Cantor came around um, in the early 19th century, and maybe longer than that, but early 19th century. And, um, and he was really stuck on this idea that, that the whole is always greater than the part. So whatever it means for two infinities to be the same size of infinity, it doesn't have anything to do with one-to-one correspondence. Because he knew that you could make a one-to-one correspondence between a little line segment and a long line segment. And that, for him, was proof that, well, since the little line segment is just a small part of the long line segment, obviously the little line segment has fewer points, and therefore the one-to-one correspondence doesn't tell you anything about how many points there are. So that was Bolzano's view in the early 19th century. Cantor comes along and says, no, Bolzano, you've got Cantor counted that. Yeah. Oh. He, he cantered, countered. He countered by counting. counting. Yeah, yeah. Cantor countered <laughs> by his counting, ladies and gentlemen, and then discovered one-to-one correspondence. So, understanding that some infinities might be bigger than others, uh, uh, certainly are bigger than others. Well, okay, now hold on. Wait. There's no disagreement about that. I don't think there's anyone who seriously claims these days, well, not with any credibility anyway, that there is... That that all infinities are of the same size. Galileo thought that two infinities aren't even comparable. There's no question of whether they're the same size or different sizes. The whole thing doesn't even make sense. And that was basically because of the dartboard, right? Or because uh, that smaller part of the dartboard has, it can be mapped one-to-one to the whole dartboard, and yeah. yet it's also a proper part. So that means that it has to be the same size, and yet also it has to be smaller, so it's a contradiction. So Galileo said, oh, forget it. There's just no such thing as comparing infinities. And it was a really subtle position because he's not saying that they're all the same size. He's saying that the question doesn't even make sense. Infinity doesn't play by the rules. Exactly. That's exactly That was Galileo's position, right? And then Cantor gave us this theory where it's all about one-on-one correspondence. Um, and, and that faced a lot of opposition in the late 19th and early 20th century because people just didn't weren't ready to accept infinities into mathematics at all, really. But nowadays, absolutely standard. You learn it first year 
uh, University of Mathematics, and people struggle with it a little bit conceptually, but it's taken for granted that Cantor's theory is has got it right. What it means for two collections to be the same size is that they have one-to-one correspondence. End of story. Okay. Well, that's kind of answered the question. Well, so okay, but my philosophical view on this is that there isn't really a question of which theory of infinity is right and which one isn't. And lately, some new theories have emerged which show that you can have a coherent system of cardinality or, or sizes of infinity, which doesn't follow Cantor's rule of one-on-one correspondence, but instead respects the old idea that that small part in the middle of the dartboard has got to have fewer elements than the whole dartboard. Oh, so all of this then is to be uh, swept aside in the light of recent, recent developments? thinking. I wouldn't go that far. It's never going to be swept aside. Could we ever know? Could we ever know what? Could we ever know is, whether this is true? Whether this is true? Well, I, I don't think it's a question of whether it's true or not. I think that we have one sort of concept of size or number of elements, um, and we have this other concept of number of elements, and each of them might have their uses, their applications, in different contexts for different purposes, even if one of them's better than the other. And I think probably Cantor's theory is altogether more useful and better for various reasons. Yeah. That doesn't mean that the other one's illegitimate. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. So we're looking then at something that is useful in theoretical mathematics. Yes, that's right. And when I say useful, I don't mean building bridges, making money, baking bread. I mean... Useful for useful to the understanding, right? Useful yeah. for us to perceive uh, the structure of collections and and to prove things about them and understand better. Okay, so there we've got Cantor's one-to-one correspondence, yeah. the bullseye having as many points as the dartboard itself. Right. Um, so let's have a little bit more wine. Yes, uh, that's how's, how are you enjoying it, by the way? Yeah, it's lovely. It's so nice. you can taste that that other ninety-nine p. You that can extra go 99p on, on there. Jason, yeah. will you have a drop of this? Yeah, you can have a drop. Not my turn. Just go back to what you were saying there. I just thought, are there an infinite number of theories of infinity? Yeah. Ah, there could well be. And, and how many, what, what's, what size of infinity is the number of theories about infinity? Well, But the at, answer is not yet. Because surely the, at the moment, the theories seem to be finite. Well, okay, that depends on what you mean on how many are there, right? How many have we come up with or how many consistent theories are there to be discovered, right? I see. So mathematicians <clears throat> and, and and logicians as well, right, people who study logic, tend to think of these things as already existing out there and we're just coming along to discover them. And that, that goes for numbers and mathematical objects as well as theories. The theories are already out there. We're just discovering them. Mm. There's this great story by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, an Argentinian writer from like the 1930s, right? He has this, this um, he wrote a lot of these short stories and phony book reviews and things like that. He's my favorite writer. So he has this one story where he just sort of describes this world and the people who live in it. And the world is called the Library of Babel. And the world just consists of these um, hexagonal or octagonal rooms, I can't remember now, that are connected, and the shelves are just full of books. So the books are the same length, they have the same number of letters in them, and the theory is that, the theory of the inhabitants of this imaginary world, is that every possible 
book, every possible sequence of, of letters, however many thousands of letters it takes to fill one of these books, exists somewhere in the library. Now, what would this be like, right? You can walk through the library. They seem to be placed randomly. You can pour through books. Mostly it's just going to be gibberish. Lots of them will have words in them, right? Because yeah. it's easy to accidentally write a word out of random letters. And gibberish sentences sure. and so on. Every once in a while you'll find a gibberish sen- sentence. Somewhere in the library is a theory of mathematics. Somewhere in the library is another theory of mathematics. Somewhere in the library is your entire life story. Somewhere in the library is an accurate description of your future. Somewhere else in the library is an entirely inaccurate description of your future, mm. and so on. So, if you think of it that way, right? if you suppose that really any reasonable theory of infinity can be written down in, uh, in a 400-page book, surely, probably most of them don't require that much space, okay. right? Then there are only finitely many theories of mathematics out there that we can write down. You're looking sleepy. <laughs> no, no, I was I, I was thinking about that library. I was, yeah, I was quite the liking the idea of going around it. And is there a dartboard in there as well? Because that would almost be... That would be a nice addition, you know. Just every now and again, yeah. stop looking through the books, have a game of darts. Yeah. <laughs> and then ponder on uh, any, some of the newly uncovered uh, theories of infinity that you've uh, come across. That would be quite good. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I did have a question before I got sidetracked oh, by the right. honeycomb of libraries. Now, and, yeah, uh, that's right. It's a honeycomb of libraries. There. Isn't I it? may be lost in there for some time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So mm. with all these theories, the applications tend to be mathematical. Yeah. So probability. Right. How do these theories of different size infinities have an impact on probability, which oh. is something that we all kind of encounter and think about on? on on a daily basis. Yeah, right. So this is kind of what we were coming to with the dartboard, right? Yeah. So according to Kanner's theory, you could have a bunch of points on the dartboard, right? You could sit there with a pen and just mark points. And let's just pretend that your pen is infinitely fine. Yeah. And your darts are infinitely fine as well. So that when a dart hits the dartboard, it hits one exact point. And that would I have enough darts? Would you have enough darts for what? To hit all the points on the dartboard. Only if you had infinitely many darts. And, and could I have infinitely many darts? Uh, actually, no. Well, okay, so the number of darts on the dartboard is an uncountable fit infinity, right? So it's bigger than the collection of whole numbers. Yeah. Oh, right? right. And the number of d- your darts take up space in yeah. the universe, right? Yeah. So you actually couldn't have enough darts to cover to hit every point on the dartboard because they wouldn't all fit in the universe. If they were infinitely slender darts? Uh, yes, then in that case, yes. I could have enough infinitely yeah. slender darts to hit every point on that dartboard. Yes, but I don't know how... It's difficult to throw. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to pick them up. Yeah. Let alone throw, especially after a couple of pints. If I had... We could be air darts. Air guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. Purely imaginary, right? Um, as an old man, I may be yet to be found doing that in some corner <laughs> of some forgotten pub. <laughs> Picking up going, infinitely fine darts. I'm, I'm going. Just this don't explain task. to anyone that you're covering the entire dartboard with infinitely fine darts. <laughs> no. yeah. Yeah. Uh, that could get you, you know, some funny looks at the least. Yeah. Yeah, but say you take your pen, right? Yeah. And you go dot, 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 make a bunch of points on the dartboard with your pen. Yeah. Now, 
you can count the number of times that, that you've made a mark with your pen, right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, yeah. so on. Even if you went on doing that forever, you would never fill the whole dartboard because that's a countable collection of points. The dartboard is uncountable, has uncountably many points. It has more points than all the whole numbers. What that also means is that no matter how long you keep making those dots, even if you made dots on the, on the dartboard forever, if somebody then afterwards, after forever, let's say, then takes a dart and throws it at the dartboard, it's going to be very hard to hit one of those, one of those dots that you made. Not very, least treble top. What's that? Yeah. The, it, double top would be much easier than hitting those dots that, you, that you've made because you've only made a countable collection of, of dots on the, on the dartboard that's a much smaller infinity than the whole dartboard. And, and what that means is that the measure, the area, so to speak, of that collection of dots that you've made is going to be zero. They have no area at all, and that means that the probability of hitting one when you throw a dart at the dartboard is zero. All right. The other thing that I, that I did just want to touch on oh. is that, is that this, this whole idea that there's one theory of how many, which is the right theory, and there's another theory of how many, which is not right. Or, and there's only one theory that's right, and the others are all wrong. So what I've been working on lately is I've been criticizing this argument by a guy called Kurt Gödel. Right? Now, he's famous for his incompleteness theorems. He showed something really, really cool, which is that any theory of mathematics we write down is going to fail to answer all our questions. Right. So, and I just mean questions about mathematics. So, like, questions. Not the fastest land animal. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Or, yeah. Or, you know, the gestation period of the white giraffe and so on. Exactly. Even beyond that, what he says is no matter what theory you write down, there are going to be things that you can't prove with it. Okay. So, and, and his view about it is there are facts about arithmetic, facts about multiplication and exponents and things like that that are just facts about the numbers. And no matter what theory of the numbers we write down, we're never going to capture all the facts. Okay. So this goes along with his view that, that the theory or, of arithmetic and any important theory in mathematics is not just a bunch of statements that we're interested in. It's a claim about how things are in this realm of mathematical objects. In other words, he thinks the truth is out there. And when we write a theory of mathematics, we're making claims of truth or falsity. And some theories are right, and some theories are wrong. And the more popular view at his time was that theories of mathematics are collections of statements that we want to study and see what follows from them. And they may have applications to certain areas. So, I mean, and, and personally, I'm more attracted to that view even today. I think that like, you know, so when we talk about when we write down a theory of arithmetic, a theory of of addition and multiplication, well, it has applications to certain kinds of structures, certain kinds of things, and we could also have another system of numbers that violates that theory, that's different from that theory, and that would just be a different kind of sequence of numbers. But Gödel's view was the strong realist view, right? And so he wrote this argument about the whole idea of how many things are there in an infinite collection, right? So, and what he was saying is that Cantor's idea that it's all about one-to-one correspondence is right. Ah. And any other idea that you have, he didn't really talk about the other ideas, any other idea you have has to be wrong, right? 
So this is one of the things I've been working on is trying to explain why Cantor's, why Gödel's argument for Cantor's idea doesn't really hold water, right? So and it's a cute argument. It's a really clever argument, and it seems really convincing at first. Basically, what he says is, suppose you have two collections of lumps of clay, right? right. And let's suppose there are infinite collections of lumps of clay. You've got infinitely many lumps of clay in each set. The, the lumps of clay in one set have a certain shape. Right, right. they have they have their own shapes, each one, and the lumps of clay in the other set have different shapes, right? But he says, well, look, if there's a one-on-one correspondence between the two sets, then that means we could take these lumps of clay in set B and shape them so that they look just like this, the lumps of clay in set A. Yeah, and we could position them so that they're positioned relative to each other in just the same way as the lumps of clay in set A. Right? Yeah, and so then at the end, once we've done this. We've got two sets of lumps of clay that are exactly the same. There's no way to tell which is which. And then he says, if there's no way to tell which is which, then they have to have the same number of elements. They have to have the same cardinality, the same how many. Right? And so he says, well, since I didn't change how many lumps of clay there were when I shaped them and repositioned them, I didn't change how many there are in either set. So they must have had the same number of elements to begin with. Right? Yeah. And so... It's a very convincing argument. Oh, yeah, sure, lumps of clay. But there are a lot of problems with the argument. First of all... Where are you going to get all that clay? Yeah, that's a big problem, that's a right? a big problem. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, the example he uses is the points on the square and the points on a line, like I was saying, those can be mapped one-to-one. Okay. So he's saying, like, look, you could take all those points in the square, suppose that they're particles, and just rearrange them so that they make a line. Yeah. Now they look just like the other set, so they must have the same number of elements, yeah. right? But... A couple of problems. One problem is, just because the sets look alike, why do they have to say, have the same number of elements, right? In fact, the, the people who support the newfangled theories of how many, mm. they, they are quite used to the idea that sets that look exactly alike don't have to have the same number of elements. So they would deny that. They'd say, look, they can look alike, they can be indistinguishable, but that doesn't matter because, for example, if one of them is a proper subset of the other, then the proper subset is smaller. And that's just how it is. Or, in any case, that's a perfectly legitimate concept of how many, right? The other problem with it is, okay, that works for lumps of clay, but why should that apply to everything? Do that with numbers. Do it with points in space. It doesn't make sense. No. If you take a point in space, a a point in space is just a place. You can't move it. You can't change it. You can't do anything with it without it ceasing to be what it was. Gödel says something like, and we don't want the definition of number to depend on what kinds of things we're counting. So it has to, since it applies to lumps of clay, it has to apply to everything else too. But there I think he's made a big mistake because he just assumes that since this principle of one-to-one correspondence, according to him, should hold for lumps of clay, then it's also the definition of how many. It's also the definition of number. And that same definition, which entirely is based on one-to-one correspondence, has to apply to everything else. But that just doesn't follow. Even if he has shown that for lumps of clay, if they have one-to-one correspondence, then they have to have the same number. That doesn't mean that one-to-one correspondence is the definition of number. That's a separate claim. What I've been trying to show is that Gödel's argument for this, for this orthodox idea doesn't really hold water. Mm. So I don't like this whole idea that there's right concepts and wrong concepts, right? We need more concepts. Concepts are useful. Invent anything you like. Uh, any sort of concept you like, it might turn out to, to have an application somewhere. 
Oh, that's good. There's an yeah. invitation yeah. to the world. Yeah. Think of a concept, any concept. Yeah. Any concept. Lay it on us. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think, Tim? What do you think about... Okay, so do you think that there are fewer points and has to be fewer points in the center of the dartboard than there are on the whole dartboard? If you can be infinitely small and infinitely large, yeah, then it's almost like you're splitting, you're splitting hairs forever and ever and ever. Sure. And each hair that you split, you can split another one. And, yeah. and each of those two, you can split them again and you can split them again. Right. Forever. So you can truly have an infinity of points in that bullseye, right? Yeah. But and so, and you can have as many points in the bullseye as you do in the whole dartboard. Sure. Yeah. I can, yeah. I can see can that because that? it's, it's, it's big enough to see. What if I say there are just as many even numbers as there are numbers altogether? So even if you take out all the odd numbers, you still have the same number of same same number of numbers as you started with. Well, that comes back to to, to my very initial grasp of infinity, which is the you know the two red beads, one white bead, two red beads, one white bead, right, going on forever. Yeah. And then the revelation to me when I heard this was there aren't more red beads than white beads, or more white beads. Yeah, it was. It's two red and one. Two white. Two red and one white. Two yeah. red and one white. There aren't more red beads and white beads if you've got an infinitely long string yeah, of beads. That's right. But is that white? Be- are the white beads a subset? The white beads are a subset of all of the beads together, right? The white beads are not a subset of the red beads because they're separate. Right? They're disjoint. Yeah. Say in set theory. But if you take all the beads together, and this, and then just pick out the white beads, the white beads are a subset of all the beads together. It's a smaller infinity. According to numerosity theory, yes, it's a smaller infinity. According to Cantor, no. This is still the same size. The proper subset is still the same size as the whole set. Because it, you're one-to-one corresponding forever. Yeah, because you could take you could take the first red bead, match that with the first white bead. Yeah. Then take the second red bead, match that with the second white bead, which is going to be a little further down, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Then take the third red bead, match that with the third white bead, and so on and forever. So you've got a one-to-one correspondence. Yeah. So there's just as many red beads, white beads as there are red beads. Infinity allows one-to-one correspondence. Yeah, it does. It's very permissive about that. But, but there are cases where it's not possible, like with the points on the dartboard and the whole numbers. Okay, so here's, here's how Canner did that, right? So look, let's, let's set aside the dartboard and talk about the points on... Uh, a line segment, right? Yeah. Now you could you could represent each of those points with an infinitely long decimal number. You can't just use finitely long def- decimal numbers because that would only give you the rational numbers. So in between, you know, one half and um, nineteen thirty sixths or whatever, mm-hmm. there's another there's another point, and in between all of the rational points, there are more points, right? So you can have decimals that have um, repeating patterns, and then you can have decimals that don't have repeating patterns. Now the question is, okay, let's suppose that each point on the line corresponds to one of these infinitely long decimals, right? Could you write a list of those infinitely long decimals and capture them all? In other words, can you match them one-to-one with the whole numbers? And the argument is no. This is called Cantor's diagonal argument. The argument is no. So we could try this, right? Write down, write down a few decimal numbers, right? 
just start with zero point something. Make them all start with zero point and then write down a few of them. Yeah. Okay. Write down another one. Okay. Yeah. Just assume that goes on forever and write down another one. Okay. All right. And then assume that goes on forever and write down another one. Yeah. Let me see your, let me see your sheet there, right? Let me see what you put there. <laughs> so what Kanner says is, look, even if you wrote these down forever so that you had an infinitely long list of them, I would be able to write down a number that's not on your list. So right. your one-one correspondence has failed. And here's how you do it. Your first number is 0.349 something rather. So I'm going to make mine start 0.4 something something. Yeah. So it's different from your first one. Yeah. Your second number is 0.411111. Okay, so I'm going to make mine 0.42. So it's different from your second one. Okay. Okay. So I've changed this digit. I've changed in the first decimal, I've changed the first digit. In the second decimal, I've changed the second digit. In the third decimal, I changed the third digit. Yours is 0.665432. So I'm going to make mine 0.426432. And that's the number I first thought of. What? <laughs> so, but the point is, you could write down you could write down decimals forever, and then I can just come along and write down one that you missed, no matter how, no matter what. Yeah. So that proves that You're sneaky Pete. That proves that 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 these decimals cannot be put into one-to-one correspondence with the whole numbers, because writing a list is the same as a one-to-one correspondence with the whole numbers. Yeah. Right. But you tried to do it. And you couldn't do it. And no matter what you do, I'll be able to beat you by yeah. just changing one digit in each of your numbers. You sunk my battleship. So, yeah. So that means that there is no one-to-one correspondence there. Yeah. Yeah. There's no one-to-one correspondence, and and those numbers, the infinite decimals, those are representations of the real numbers, which are supposed to represent all of the points on the line. Right. At right. least again, there's an alternative theory. That so there's says, always another point on the line. Yeah. No matter how many points you write down, there's always going to be another one that you've missed. So that, that makes sense for why there's an infinite number of points of the dart board. Exactly. Because if I wrote down the point through the dart hit as a coordinate, mm-hmm. like X 1.5, yes. Y 1.97, yeah. mm-hmm. I could always create a new number in between those. Yeah. Yep. A different number. So there could yep. always be a new coordinate. I think there's life in this dartboard theory. Yes. I think we could probably find theories that correlate to pretty much everything you can find in a pub that will explain <laughs> explain the, the theories of everything. We need to find that Master of the Infinite, um, Eric Bristow, to explain it all to That's us. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Who's that? Eric Bristow being uh, an infamous dart player here. Oh, I see. Right. Uh, well, we should get him on the show. Uh, yeah, we should. The Crafty Cockney. I tell you what, the Crafty Cockney, if we could get him on there... Playing darts as we talk, and then we could sort of extrapolate the information. Right. Maybe Good. he holds the secret to the universe yeah, in what he, what he hits on the dartboard. Right. So, All right. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, see if you can get us in touch with this man. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> Eric Bristow, yeah. you belong on Thinkative. You could be our mascot. I'll drink to that. All yeah. right. Have you got some wine? I've got some wine. Have you got some wine? There? To Eric Bristow, gentlemen. Eric Bristow. Bristow. <laughs>
We about out of wine now. <laughs>